Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 141, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Hey members, check your feeds. In addition to the fun stuff we do with food, myths, and TV shows that I hate, I also want the members feed to include episodes that are basically study aids that'll help you better understand what's going on with certain areas of history in context and with greater focus. Basically, so you can listen to the main story, but also have a better understanding of how all the gears in this machine work together. So with that in mind, we have the first of a two-part series on the women of Mercia. Now, why are we handling this as a separate members-only episode? Well, because we're just hitting the point where we're going to start seeing how Mercia is a little different from other kingdoms in the Germanic East, especially with regard to women. But because of the way the story is told, and how scant our sources are, it's possible that you might miss the forest for the trees. So while we will be talking about these women over the coming months, I wanted to put something together that would give you a more focused framing on what seems to be developing in the Midlands, and include some of their stories back to back. Naturally, these stories will also be included in the main show, but I think it would be helpful to see the general trend of what's occurring over in Penda's homeland over the centuries, and how it probably led to the rise of figures like Aethelflaed, Lady of Mercia. So members, update your feeds and have a listen to part one of The Women of Mercia. Now this episode is going to be a lot of fun. But before we get going, I should warn you that we're going to deal with some pretty similar names coming at us fast and furious. So you might want to make note or just have these characters distinct in your mind. Here's a quick rundown. Oswald was the king of Northumbria and the son of Aethelfrith, who was killed by Penda at Maserfield. Oswiu was his brother. Osric of Deira was the king of Deira and nephew of Edwin, who was killed by Cadwathlin. And Oswin was the son of Osric. So to recap, Oswald and Oswiu were brothers and Bernician. Osric and Oswin are father and son and Deiran. Isn't this fun? All right. It's 642, and in Wessex, King Chinegils of the West Saxons has died, and his son Chenwal has succeeded to the throne. Chinegils was a surprisingly resilient king as was his counterpart, Quichelm. Both of them had survived battle with Penda and his Mercians, and Quichelm had even survived Edwin's vengeance following a failed assassination attempt. But now Chinegils was dead, and Quichelm was... Well, it's not really clear. He just vanishes. But this is a pretty big year, because you have a large transfer of power in the kingdom of Wessex, and now Chenwal reigned as king, a man whose line, despite the lack of clarity regarding his father's lineage, still stretches all the way back to Churditch, though exactly how it goes is subject to debate. So, things down south were changing in 642, and this was also the same year as the battle at Mazer Field. So in addition to Chinegil's dying, Oswald and Eowa were also dead. In this case, it was because of battle, and also because of, you know, Penda. And speaking of Penda, our friend, pagan King Penda, was the last noble standing in that power struggle. And so now he was the unquestioned king of Mercia. He was supreme. And you can almost imagine him looking with some level of confusion at the conversions that were occurring all around him. I mean, 
Wasn't Mazer Field proof that his gods were powerful? He was victorious, repeatedly, against powerful Christian leaders. He must have wondered where the Christian god was on the battlefield. For proof of his gods, all he needed to do was listen in a storm. He could often hear Thunor striking his hammer. And fun fact here, we still talk about Thunor when we have large storms. We just use the modern term for the god. Thunder. But yeah, after the defeats of Edwin and Oswald, the prevalence of Christianity and the abandonment of paganism might have seemed a little bit strange. But there you have it. Christianity was growing in power, and the northern king was dead, and Northumbria was ripe for a regime change. And Penda had an ace in his pocket in Ainfrith. I mean, think about it. He had the son of Edwin, the Deiran heir of Northumbria, as his prisoner. And now the Bernician king of Northumbria was dead. This would have been an ideal opportunity to install the Deiran dynasty and create a powerful northern ally. And there probably would be support for this move from at least half of Northumbria. But there was a wrinkle. Penda had Ainfrith killed back when Oswald of Bernicia was ruling Northumbria. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time, but oh man, was that an unfortunate error on his part. And so now he really didn't have anyone to put on the throne of Northumbria. He had nobody with a clear claim to that title that could act as his puppet. Bummer. But there was someone who was waiting in the wings. Oswald's brother, Oswiu. Here was another son of King Aethelfrith of Northumbria, and he came from a respected line, and was a brother to the beloved martyred King Oswald. But where was he? Well, that's a really good question. We don't have any record of him fighting at Mazer Field. And that's kind of odd, don't you think? I mean, you had the king fighting in the field against Penda in what looked like a pretty pitched battle. So if Oswald was there, where was his brother? And if he was there, why wasn't he mentioned in the records? Also, if he wasn't there, what was he doing and why wasn't he there? It's kind of an odd moment of silence in the record, and it makes this whole situation seem a bit unclear. But what is clear is that he didn't die at Mazer Field. And thanks to the opening in the line of succession that was created by Penda killing Ainfrith all those years earlier, Oswiu seized the opportunity and took the throne of Bernicia for his own. Once again, the line of Ida was on top in the north. Well, sort of. While the details of rule at this point aren't clear, Oswiu was apparently only ruling Bernicia, and for a couple years we don't know who was ruling Deira. It might have been Oswiu, but it would be strange if that was left unmentioned in the record. Further, Penda had a vested interest in breaking up the Northumbrian hegemony. That region was dangerous as hell, especially in the hands of the line of Ida. So if he couldn't control it, breaking it up would have been the only sane course of action. So, once again, the power of Northumbria was broken. And then, in 643 or 644, we're told that King Oswiu collected the body parts of his brother. You might remember that following the battle at Mazer Field, Penda had Oswald chopped up and displayed on whale stings. Well, we aren't given details of that trip, but it must have been a bit rough. But also, it gives you a sense of Bernicia's fealty to Penda, because King Oswiu was allowed passage to the battlefield, which would have required travel through Mercia and probably into the kingdom of Poes. And what that tells us is that yes, Oswiu was reigning in Bernicia, 
but Penda was apparently okay with this course of affairs. Otherwise, he probably would have attacked him while he was exposed in Mercia. And this is one of those odd things about this era of rule. When you think of war, most of the time these days, you think of the acquisition of territory or a total regime change. You know, something along the lines of finding someone who can't really defend against your military and nicking all their stuff. Or, if you're not happy with the way they're behaving, getting rid of their leadership and putting entirely new leaders in charge who happen to rule in the way that you like. But here we have something a little bit different. Aethelfrith did nick to Era, true, and you do see smaller kingdoms and territories getting absorbed. And frankly, Northumbria does seem to be an odd exception to the general trend of Anglo-Saxon Britain. But in general, rather than something that looks like the Roman dynastic purges following a victory, you see smaller shifts. The king gets killed, but the victors allow another member of the same family to take the throne, rather than taking the throne for themselves. It's kind of an odd thing, and we generally see power continually going back to a small group of families. And where there is an outsider like Rickabert who does come in, those outsiders usually don't last too long before the ruling families reassert their control and usually lop off a few limbs and heads. Hell, this even crosses cultural bounds. For example, even though Dalriata had every reason to hate Bernicia and King Aethelfrith following the brutal defeat at Degsistan, that same kingdom offered sanctuary to Aethelfrith's sons when they fled into exile. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? And what it looks like is that the ruling families might fight amongst each other, but they also seem to be protecting the power structure and only looking for ways to get rid of certain individuals rather than getting rid of entire lines. With, of course, a few exceptions in Northumbria. So yeah, Penda went and defeated Oswald. But he still let his brother, Oswiu, rule rather than installing one of his own sons on the throne. And he even let the new king travel through the Midlands to get the bones of his brother. And so it makes you wonder if there was some sort of cultural value that was in play that was basically protecting the powerful despite their internal struggles. And speaking of royal families protecting themselves, it's at around this point in history, in 644, that we hear that Deira also has its own king. And that would make sense if the goal was to break up the Northumbrian hegemony. And so Oswin, the son of Osric, yeah, the Osric who claimed the throne of Deira for himself following the death of his cousin Edwin and then was killed in battle by Cawathlin. Well, Oswin, his son, was now King Oswin of Deira. So things were getting back to normal, with the royal house of Bernicia ruling over only Bernicia and the royal house of Deira ruling over only Deira, and the Britons being a bit grumpy about the whole situation. But again, that was nothing new. But it really does say a lot that Oswin was ruling there, doesn't it? I mean, despite the best efforts of Aethelfrith to completely wipe out that line, there were still some members of the old Deiran dynasty. And even though they had to go to the son of the cousin of Edwin, they still found somebody who had a family claim to the throne. So yeah, dynastic rule looks like it was firmly entrenched by this point in history. And it was even protected by foreign kingdoms. And while Northumbria was broken up, King Oswiu was certainly looking to defend his dominant position, and he appears to have been interested in expanding into the south right from the start. He already had a claim on Deira through his birth mother, Acha of Deira, but he reinforced this claim in 644 by marrying Ainflaed, 
the daughter of Edwin of Deira and Princess Ethelbert of Kent. Yeah, he just married his cousin. Awesome. But, you know, Dark Ages, what are you going to do? And, frankly, in marrying his cousin, he also gained a powerful ally in the King of Kent. And that made him one hell of a threat in the North. And King Oswiu of Bernicia's actions are hard to see in any other context than as a power grab. I mean, he immediately entered into a political marriage at the point when Oswin appears in the record. So he must have wanted to grab Deira and reform Northumbria. But there was an issue. That issue was the fact that King Oswin had entered the record. And so he was already ruling the South, despite Bernicia's new alliance and claims on the Deiran throne. And frankly, King Oswin must have been a bit of a headache for the Bernician king, because he was pretty quickly gaining popularity through his own piety. Now keep in mind that Northumbria was still newly converted, but piety and zealousness appear to have been quite respected and revered even amongst the new converts. And it looks like King Oswin was a true believer. So much so that St. Aidan, whose monastery was in Bernicia, and who was a friend of the martyred Bernician king, King Oswald, began to really admire King Oswin of Deira. And that must have really stung for King Oswiu, not just because of his family's connection to the saint, but also because Aidan's power base was just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Oswiu's capital of Bamber. Further, it looks like King Oswin might have been cut from a similar cloth as Edwin, since he didn't seem to be overly interested in making York subject to Canterbury. And as an aside, this same year, 644, Bishop Paulinus, who was largely responsible for the creation of the Northern Church, died in Rochester. Anyway, if the Northern Church and Oswin were subject to Canterbury, that would make his kingdom subject to King Oswiu's Kentish allies. So we certainly have political reasons to want to avoid that. But there's another possibility. I mean, Edwin was on the path to create a second see in Britain that was independent of the Kentish Church. And Oswin really looked like he was going in that direction. And his ties with Aidan and his piety could only have helped him in that regard. So maybe he wanted to have a separate see in Britain. And frankly, if that happened, it's quite possible that Bernicia would be spiritually subject to Deira. And with King Oswin's piety and the admiration amongst luminaries of the Church of Britain, it may have started to look like Oswin was Oswald's spiritual successor, rather than his own brother, Oswiu. Are you enjoying all these Oz names? Aren't you dying for an Aethel to appear somewhere in the record? So the point is that King Oswin of Deira was quite admired, even by later writers like Bede. And honestly, it seems like it was for good reason. Here's what Bede had to say. King Oswin was of a goodly countenance, and tall of stature, pleasant in discourse, and courteous in behavior, and bountiful to all, gentle and simple alike, so that he was beloved by all men for the royal dignity of his mind, and appearance, and actions, and men of the highest rank came from almost all provinces to serve him. Among all the graces of virtue and moderation by which he was distinguished, and, if I may say so, blessed in a special manner, humility is said to have been the greatest, which it will suffice to prove by one instance. He had given a beautiful horse to Bishop Aidan, to use in either crossing rivers or in performing a journey upon any urgent necessity, though the bishop was wont to travel ordinarily on foot. Some short time after, a poor man meeting the bishop and asking alms, he immediately dismounted and ordered the horse, with all his royal trappings, to be given to the beggar, 
for he was very compassionate, a great friend to the poor, and in a manner, the father of the wretched. This being told to the king, when they were going into dinner, he said to the bishop, What do you mean, my lord bishop, by giving the poor man that royal horse, which it was fitting that you should have for your own use? Have we not many other horses of less value, or things of other sorts, which would have been good enough to give the poor, instead of giving that horse, which I had chosen and set apart for your own use? Thereupon the bishop answered, What do you say, O king? Is that son of a mare more dear to you than the son of God? Upon this they went into dinner, and the bishop sat in his place, but the king, who had come in from hunting, stood warming himself with his attendants at the fire. Then, on a sudden, whilst he was warming himself, calling to mind what the bishop had said to him, he ungirt his sword and gave it to a servant, and hastened to the bishop and fell down at his feet, beseeching him to forgive him. From this time forward, said he, I will never speak any more of this, nor will I judge what or how much of our money you shall give to the sons of God. The bishop was much moved at this sight, and starting up, raised him, saying that he was entirely reconciled to him, if he would but sit down to his meat and lay aside all sorrow. The king, at the bishop's command and request, was comforted, but the bishop, on the other hand, grew sad and was moved even to tears. His priest then asking him, in the language of his country, which the king and his servants did not understand, why he wept. I know, said he, that the king will not live long, for I have never before seen a humble king, whence I perceive that he will soon be snatched out of this life, because this nation is not worthy of such a ruler. End quote. So, it's pretty clear that Bede had a bit of a crush on King Oswin of Deira, and if the account is accurate, it looks like St. Aidan at least had some butterflies in his tummy. And if you're paying attention to the start, it sounds like most of Britain did, even the kings, because we're told that men of the highest rank came from almost all provinces to serve him. That's quite a statement. And consequently, this Deiran king either had a ton of dumb luck, or he was shrewd as hell, because despite Oswiu's maneuvering, Deira was still a player in this struggle. I mean, look at all the moral authority that he was lining up for his rule. And I bet that the assumption was, at least for Oswiu, that simply because the two kingdoms were now split up, probably at the command of Penda, it didn't mean that either king would be satisfied with only holding half of his presumed birthright. After all, they had been ruled as a single nation for about 40 years now, so basically for about as long as anyone could remember. So I wonder if they were just basically looking across the border at each other, just waiting for an invasion, or maybe looking for a reason to invade. And think about what we have here. It's only 644, and we have Bernicia aligning itself with Kent, which was powerful both in material wealth and also in spiritual authority. And at the same time, Bernicia was also expanding its claim on Deira by having a king that had a claim to the throne both through his birth and through marriage. This was a problem for Deira. Meanwhile, you have Deira sticking its thumb in the eye of Kent by refusing, or at least ignoring, the mission from Canterbury. And at the same time, it was allying itself with the major Christian power in the region, Aden. And as such, it was cloaking itself in the aura of holiness that the martyred King Oswald had created. And that sense was so powerful that cults for Oswald sprung up almost immediately following his death and even became popular on the continent. 
Oswald was beloved. Mostly, as we talked about earlier, the monks and Lindsay were still a bit grouchy with him, but in general, he was absolutely just adored. And by working with his spiritual advisor, I wonder if King Oswin was starting to look a bit like Oswald's heir, which would be a problem for Bernicia. So in just a handful of years following Mazerfield, the North had fragmented, and rather than focusing on the man who broke them up, they were maneuvering to take each other out. And as a bonus, rather than the church unifying throughout most of the island, which easily could have done, it was looking like there was going to be a north-south schism amongst the Christians. Penda must have had the biggest shit-eating grin on the planet. This might have just been a happy accident, but I can't help but think of Penda sitting down like Palpatine in a ridiculously large chair and saying, everything is proceeding as I have foreseen. I mean, this is just going way too well. And things weren't just going well for Penda in the north. Down south, the West Saxons found themselves in a tight spot as well. I mean, they had a new king. They had already lost once to this Mercian warlord in 628. And because they lost the Lower Severn Valley, they were uncomfortably close to the Mercian base of power. And to make matters worse, Wessex had hitched its wagon to the losing side of a pretty tough struggle. So Wessex which had once shared a religious background with Mercia, had now converted under the direction of Oswald. And they tied themselves to Oswald so hard that when King Chinegills was baptized, Oswald stood as his godfather. And that was pretty serious business at this point in history. It's kind of like having a blood relation. Or in some cases, it's even thicker than blood. And speaking of blood relations, King Oswald of Northumbria also married one of King Chinegill's daughters. So the West Saxons were firmly in the pocket of Northumbria. But now Oswald was dead, and Northumbria was shattered, and Penda, who had a history of taking West Saxon territory, was at the top of the pack. And he had a history of killing kings. And on the same year that Oswald died, and Wessex lost his Northumbrian overlordship, King Chinegils also died. So suddenly, they were adrift without northern protection, neighbored against an ambitious and powerful kingdom, and they were dealing with a regime change. Tough spot. But hey, unlike his father, the new king of the West Saxons, Chenwal, wasn't Christian. So at least there was no longer religious static between the Mercian and West Saxon leadership. And on top of that, we're also told that at some point, King Chenwal had married Penda's sister. And that's a pretty smart move as well, if you ask me. So this might have worked out okay, but it didn't. Because frankly, this might not have been the most happy of marriages. Which isn't too surprising, since it might have been an arranged marriage upon taking the throne. Or maybe he was already married during Chinegil's reign, something like that. I mean, marriages like this, in order to keep the peace with a powerful enemy, aren't exactly unheard of. And perhaps, he was really starting to regret the political nature of his home life. Or maybe there was an armor-bearer involved, like the story of Cartamandua, Venutius, and everyone's favorite cad, Velocatus. But whatever the case, soon after taking the throne, King Chenwal felt free to rid himself of an unwanted wife. Now, Bede really doesn't give us the juicy details of this split, but we're told that probably in 645, he curbed Penda's sister. And then King Chenwal took another wife. Not smart. And really, it might have been better if Chenwal just kicked sand in Penda's face. 
Because not only was he essentially breaking off diplomatic ties by eliminating the marital connection between their kingdoms, but he was also making a pretty strong attack on Penda's family on top of it. And while women were generally restricted from the halls of power, it didn't mean that they were worthless. This would not be the only time that we would see feathers getting ruffled due to poor treatment of female family members. So while society might have been more organized around men than women, it didn't mean that women didn't matter at all. And actually, Mercia in particular has some cultural history with being more female-friendly than most other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So yeah, women mattered, especially in Mercia. And this jackass just rejected Penda's sister. And King Penda responded like any brother would. Well, any brother who had a habit of battling neighboring kingdoms, killing kings, and had recently chopped up the body of a saint so it could be put on display. Seriously, Chenwal, how did you imagine this was going to end? Now, we aren't given details on the battle that followed, only that at about 645, Penda and his forces marched in, defeated Chenwal handily in battle, and drove him from the throne. Chenwal, and I presume his new wife, then legged it to East Anglia and took refuge in the court of King Anna. Once again, Penda had demonstrated mercy and strength. This small group of border people in the Midlands had grown and found their footing under his leadership. And he was undefeated in battle and had killed four kings and now exiled a fifth. Woden and Thunor might have been losing ground in the Germanic East but they must still have appeared to have some power left on the island. And their devotee, King Penda, had ensured that Chenwal was learning that firsthand. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And really, there's all kinds of good stuff for you to get involved in. We've got communities all over the place. Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, you name it. And to find all of them, all you need to do is go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and just have a poke around. I'm sure you'll find something you'll like. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>